Welcome to the Creditors Bargain Podcast, a show where I discuss corporate insolvency law with guests who are academics or practitioners from different jurisdictions. I'm your host, Akshaya Kamalnath, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law. My guest today is Philip Gavin, a PhD candidate at the Trinity College, Dublin. We talk about his article titled, A Rejection of Absolutist Duties as a Barrier to Creditor Protection, Facilitating Directorial Decisiveness Surrounding Insolvency Through the Business Judgment Rule. There's also some bonus conversation in the end about Ireland, which is Philip's home jurisdiction, and also about UK in terms of how these jurisdictions deal with director's duties and creditor protection during or around insolvency. Do check the show notes for links of articles that we talk about. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. First of all, congrats on writing such a thorough paper. I enjoyed reading it. And I think there's a lot of comparative interest in the topics you talk about. I know your paper is on Delaware law. So before we jump Mm -hmm. into what happens during insolvency, can you quickly take us through what director's duties are when the company is healthy under Delaware law? Yeah, of course. Um, So Delaware law is quite interesting in that it recognizes three very broad duties that directors owe. So they owe a duty of care, uh, a duty of good faith, and a duty of loyalty. There's also all this kind of conversation around how these duties overlap because a director needing to act in good faith, one could say, okay, they also have to act with loyalty. One can see very easily how there's a lot of overlap and interchange there. But when they're acting, According to those duties, those three kind of broad stroke ideas, those duties are always owed to the company, of course, as is common in most countries. And they're often understood very much in relation to shareholders. So you have to act with loyalty and good faith towards your company for the benefit of shareholders uh, and with the you know, with shareholder welfare or shareholder value in mind. That kind of shareholder orientation of the duties is stronger in certain contexts. So in takeovers, for example, it can be quite strong, but pretty much throughout the the life cycle of a company, so long as it's healthy prior to insolvency, it will be understood in relation to shareholders. So when they're discharging their duties, they really do not have any other constituency in mind. It's probably in, in terms of the three broad duties, so care, loyalty and good faith. That's a bit more abstract than we see in other in other jurisdictions that have maybe a more detailed statutory regime, but it, it's very detailed and developed by the judiciary in Delaware, what those obligations are and kind of the, the minute obligations that we'd expect of directors when the company is, is healthy. And you, you discussed the business judgment rule and how that can actually uh, help clarify the competing interests of various constituencies. Can you quickly tell us how this helps in a pre-insolvency context that is in a healthy company before we get into insolvency? Yes, so just like the duties um, of the directors, which are largely a judge-made development, 
We also have the business judgment rule in Delaware, which is also largely a judicial construct. The business judgment rule is essentially a shield for directors that will protect them and protect their decisions, their decision-making process, provided certain criteria are met. So it prevents the court from engaging in too thorough a scrutiny of the directors and therefore shields them from the likelihood of liability or shields them from the court imposing its own preferences on directors. That idea of judicial latitude, I suppose, is, is pretty common in most countries anyway. But I think where Delaware goes a step further than most countries is in how detailed it describes the business judgment rule. So it's not just a judicial sentiment that we need to respect directors and we need to respect the board decision-making process, but rather it, it goes into detail on the basis uh, upon which the business judgment rule is created and the certain modes of attack, I suppose, that a plaintiff can argue, which will get this business judgment rule displaced. So the basic idea is that the business judgment rule will be a presumption that in making a business decision, directors acted on an informed basis, they acted in good faith, and they acted in the honest belief uh, that their actions were in the best interests of the company. So it's really focusing on that directors have the information, more direction, more information than a court might have, for instance. They also have the expertise that a court might not have. And the idea is that a court should not be imposing its own preferences when it's not necessarily a business expert, when it's not necessarily able to avail of the same information that a board can avail of. And also that a court, when scrutinizing the actions of directors, is inherently doing that in with the benefit of hindsight and presumably something has gone wrong if we've reached the stage where a court needs to scrutinize uh, the decisions of a board so keeping in mind that they're not necessarily business experts and keeping in mind that it's unfair to approach the decisions of a board with this bias of hindsight they sh allow this shield to be erected in favor of directors and it will really only be impugned where a director, for instance, lacked independence, so they had a conflict of interest with the decision and they did not act in good faith or their decision could not be attributed to, say, a rational business purpose. So there was no rational basis for the decision that they made or that the process that they employed, so how they got around to their decision, either was uninformed or employed some grossly negligent process. So it really emphasizes how you got to the decision rather than the decision itself you know they they want to step a bit away from okay what are the merits of the decision what is the substantive outcome they don't really want to engage in that too much instead they want to say well how did you come about to that decision what steps did you take what information did you gather and if all that is acceptable then the court will defer to the board and, and allow them to be shielded by this business judgment rule. And it really is there to ensure that directors feel that they have enough latitude to make decisions, that they're not overly concerned with you know, constant threats of liability. That's very much kind of on brand, I suppose, for Delaware, this idea that you know we need to encourage entrepreneurialism, uh, the discretion of management, and also the idea that 
if shareholders don't like the outcome, if something goes wrong, well, they're the ones who picked the board. And it's almost like, you know, a caveat emptor argument. So very much, you know, allowing directors to, to make their own decisions, uh, provided the process that they're employing is satisfactory to the court. Mm, that's that's really a helpful summary. And actually here in Australia, we've uh, been inspired by the business judgment rule and incorporated it to the Corporations Act. So good to hear the Delaware, how, how it works. But moving now to what we would call a zone of insolvency or a shadow of insolvency, but I think it, it may be a, a little different in Delaware. But when a company becomes insolvent or is close to insolvency, how how, how do you decide the point where you uh, change what duties we assign to directors and how does it change? Yes, so the approach in Delaware, I, I think, is rather interesting in it, it, it's really done a bit of a U-turn about the this idea of the zone of insolvency or one of the phrases that you see in Delaware is the vicinity of insolvency. You know, should the duties of directors change in the context of this kind of approaching insolvency idea? There was one case which suggested in the vicinity of insolvency, the duties of directors will change. So approaching insolvency, maybe they should also consider the interests of creditors, for example, which is the classic group that need to be considered approaching insolvency. That was the, the Credit Lyonnais case. After that, however, we do have two cases that reject that idea that say, no, unless the company is actually insolvent, the duty of directors remains that shareholder-oriented duty to the company. The interests of creditors are not going to intrude until we actually reach um, a point of insolvency. Um, so in that regard, it, it's interesting to see this kind of uh, switch back. I think where most jurisdictions are seeing what way can we maybe allow creditors to be considered at an earlier stage, that doesn't seem to be happening in Delaware. They've taken a bit of a firm stance there and said, it's only when the company reaches insolvency that the creditors have any role to play. It's also, I suppose, interesting to think about what does that um, obligation actually mean? So mm -hmm. when, you, when, when creditors are going to be considered, what will that look like? Are they the only thing that gets considered at insolvency or are they part of a kind of a broader scheme of interest that we need to think about? I suppose just to kind of take it back to basics uh, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with it but the idea of, of why creditors need to be considered in the context of directors duties and insolvency when the company is solvent as we've already said it's very much you know a shareholder orientation that directors think of the company in relation to shareholder value and we usually justify that by saying well shareholder value is residual so the better the company does shareholder value will grow accordingly so if we connect the obligations of directors to that residual value of shares, then they'll be encouraged to take entrepreneurial behavior, to grow the business, and ultimately, you know, in, in a capitalist model, that's what we want to happen. When the company is insolvent or nearing insolvency, that whole residual notion, that idea that shareholders, you know, that, that, their, that their residual value is how we structure the duty of directors, that becomes quite perverse is the phrase I use in the article. And the reason it's, it's perverse is the lower their share value comes. So the closer you are to insolvency or when you're actually at insolvency, at which point shares are essentially 
worthless, shareholders are increasingly incentivized to encourage risky behavior because they have less skin in the game. If the company is already near insolvency and their shares are nearly worthless, if the company makes a, you know, a risky gambit, it might pay off and then share value is restored or it might not pay off, in which case the shareholders are already, you know, nearly, nearly have no interest in the company anyway and the losses are really going to fall on the creditors. So that kind of residual um, value that shareholders hold becomes a, a source of perverse incentive, particularly if that's what's incentivizing directors. And that whole idea is really what has motivated this discussion on, okay, should directors not just add insolvency, but in the vicinity of insolvency, consider creditors as well as shareholders. But as we've seen with Delaware, that really has not been the case. It's very much focused on at insolvency, it will change. And even when the company is insolvent, Delaware law has stated the duty is not just to creditors or it's not just a duty to the company with a creditor orientation. Instead, the directors are to consider all residual interest holders in the company. It becomes this kind of wider, expansive notion of the pool of interest holders. So that includes both the shareholders and the creditors at insolvency. So it's not a situation where the interests of creditors are going to oust or supplant the interests of shareholders once the company goes insolvent. Instead, both are now going to be considered at insolvency. And this kind of wider holistic analysis can take place about, you know, should the company be wound up and maybe creditors get whatever value return they can get at that stage? Or is there an opportunity maybe for corporate rescue and a return to solvency? In which case, you know, we might say that we're actually, you know, thinking about shareholders then, okay, we can actually recoup some value for them too. So it becomes this kind of holistic balancing exercise. So when, when we say the directors have discretion to balance all these interests, do you think mm -hmm. that can give rise to some problems? And I think you discuss how the business judgment rule in this context also actually helps steady or give some direction. Can you explain that? Yeah, so the, I mean, whenever we talk about, I, I think both insolvency and insolvency, whenever someone argues, okay, we need to not just consider, say, shareholders, we need to consider creditors as well, or even, you know, maybe we have to consider employees or, or any other constituency. Whenever you, you task a board with balancing different interests, shareholders and non-shareholder interests, that inherently is can, or can be quite a difficult task. And it's one that requires some degree of deference to directors, because if you're saying we want you to balance these interests and come with a suitable outcome, it's pretty impossible for that to be uh, done unless you say there's a whole range of potential suitable outcomes and provided that again you use a suitable process and provided you are informed and not grossly negligent in your decision making then i think you need to be deferential to directors when they're making those decisions because if you say okay you have the discretion 
you have to balance these interests, but actually there's only one suitable outcome here. And if you get it wrong, we're going to sue you and you face liability. No one would want to do it and no one would want to be a director. And it would be an awful, awful job. So the only way that that works, the only way that you can say to a director, listen, you're not just considering the interests of this one constituency. You're not just considering the interests of shareholders or creditors, whichever it is. Instead, you need to consider this widened residual pool of interest holders that only works if we are respecting their discretion and we're respecting the decisions they reach as the so-called business experts that we presume directors are. Again, this business judgment rule, this idea of judicial latitude towards directors is one way and is probably the most developed way in the Delaware context of respecting that discretion of immunizing directors from liability provided that they have you know met those basic criteria we mentioned earlier so it, it's it's a, if we are going to make them balance different interests the business judgment rule is very helpful for that reason um, um, i think i was going to move on to how you discuss two different tests for insolvency which again we're quite familiar with in other jurisdictions and you again speak about how the business judgment rule can help reconcile them. So I'm sensing a theme here, but can yeah. you explain that? <laughs> yeah. So again, I, I also, I, I feel it's worth saying, I, I'm not, I, 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 in the paper, I really sound like I'm, I'm, you know, the biggest supporter of the business judgment rule as if I, I think it should be adopted everywhere. Um, I think it's, it's definitely, because it's so well developed in Delaware, it's certainly, in my mind, the easiest way for Delaware directors to kind of reconcile these issues. But I, I think if we might get onto it at the end, you know, other jurisdictions have taken a different approach to, to similar concerns on how to balance all these competing. It's just on the idea of the different tests for insolvency and, and the trigger point of insolvency. It's something I mentioned in the paper that it's this idea that when directors have to change their approach at insolvency, that can be extremely difficult because you're saying to them one moment you're solvent and the next moment you're insolvent you need to change your approach you need to change your your considerations and you know your, your decision making your decision making process and, and the, the the interest that you are giving consideration to and giving weight to and when the duty is not this kind of absolute duty by that i mean you're not saying you're considering shareholders we flip a switch you're considering creditors but because it's you're considering shareholders we flip a switch and now that expands to be shareholders and creditors it's not as much of like a knee-jerk shift it but it, it still is quite a dramatic change the duty is changing in quite a, a significant way because creditors must now also be considered at insolvency and my concern is Defining insolvency is inherently difficult, particularly in the moment for directors. It might be easier in hindsight to look back and say, okay, we think this was the moment the company went insolvent. But when you're in the thick of it, that can be quite difficult. And saying to directors, your duty only changes at insolvency. It doesn't change approaching insolvency. That means that there must be some at least theoretically, this bright line moment, this threshold at which their duties need to change. And forcing directors to adjust their behavior based around this 
threshold that's really difficult to identify is you know quite a difficult task and requires some degree of latitude to directors again and when we talk about tests for insolvency how to define insolvency the most common ones we see are this idea of balance sheet insolvency so if you look at a company's balance sheet that their liabilities are higher than their assets that's quite backwards looking that's looking at okay our historical information to date what are our assets what are our liabilities and are the liabilities bigger than the assets the other major test is what's called cash flow insolvency. So it's the idea that going forward, as your liabilities fall due or as your debts come up to be paid, you won't be able to pay them. So that's quite future looking. So we have those two different tests and there are times in law where we see, you know, maybe a bankruptcy code or maybe a particularly particular statutory provision will use one test over the other. But when it comes to this duty, this duty to consider the interests of creditors, we haven't really seen any courts consider one over the other. They tend to allow a bit of freedom. They tend to refer to both tests and refer to maybe different metrics or different pieces of information necessary to understanding insolvency. And to me, that's a very important point because to me, insolvency is not just, you know, it's not just one thing, you know, it's not just the sky is blue and that company is insolvent. Insolvency is multiple pieces of information. It's multiple tests for understanding the liabilities, the assets. It's understanding the contingency of those things. How likely are you to get that income in that you're expecting? How likely is it that you won't have that income in time to pay certain debts it isn't just you know a black and white equation for directors so because it can be quite difficult to understand insolvency because it's actually multiple pieces of factual information that the directors need to process i think the business judgment rule can be quite helpful because as i said earlier what the business judgment rule really focuses on is the decision making process how did you remain informed or how did you remain abreast of the condition of the company how did you decide what facts were material and what weren't in your decision making process and you know were you grossly negligent in in your decision making process and if we think of insolvency in relation to that business judgment rule well if we think okay did you take into account the level of assets level of liability the likelihood of income coming in you know the the different probabilities facing your company that all becomes quite you know there it, it's multiple pieces of factual information that the board can then assimilate and make a judgment and say actually we think the company is insolvent or actually we think the company is not insolvent and it becomes much more of a gray area i think that's what will be once we recognize that and once we're deferential to that decision of the board we can say okay well in hindsight on kind of a substantive scrutiny that's not how it panned out the company actually say was insolvent and you thought it wasn't but we can see how you reached that decision we can see the information you accounted for you know you you weren't grossly negligent leaving out certain you know relevant financial information you did assimilate everything into your decision and it just didn't pan out correctly and once we allow directors 
to approach that kind of question of insolvency in that way, it becomes less of a bright line. It isn't just you are insolvent or you're not. We do give them a bit of a, a bit of leeway, a bit of a gray area um, in which to kind of assimilate all of that financial information when making this judgment on, okay, are we actually in insolvency or not? That sounds like a really great way to solve a complicated issue, right? Because if mm -hmm. the court could come um, after the fact and say that, no, you are actually insolvent on day X, then it makes, complicates things and probably creates other sort of worse incentives, as you have said, to maybe mm -hmm. take action, even when there was a chance to rescue the company, et cetera. So it's a really good way to think about that. So coming now to saving, I think, the best, according to me, the comparative part for the end. <laughs> so yeah. how, how would you kind of, what's the, you're based in Ireland, so what's the situation mm -hmm. in Ireland and UK? Yeah, so Ireland has very recently engaged in this very short-lived, I would say, attempt to codify a duty to consider the interests of creditors. Short-lived is maybe, you know, an understatement because it was, it was a legislative proposal in front of the Irish Parliament that lasted less than a week before it was withdrawn. For various reasons, in my mind, COVID being one of them, that maybe now is not the, wasn't the right time, we'll potentially see it reintroduced in front of the Irish Parliament in hopefully the next few months or, or years. But I think looking at the Irish proposal or the Irish legislative draft for what the duty to consider creditors should be is, is actually, I, I'm a big fan of the proposal because it speaks exactly to what I was just saying. Because the way the Irish legislation understands this trigger point of insolvency is where the directors of a company believe or have reasonable cause to believe the company is unable or likely to be unable to pay its debts as they fall due. So one, you know, the listener might pick up that sounds very like cash flow insolvency, you know, unable to pay your debts as they fall due. But to me, what's interesting is it's the directors believing that they're insolvent or that they have reasonable cause mm. to believe that they're insolvent. So we're not just looking at what did the director think? We're looking at how did they come to that decision? What was the basis for their belief that a company is insolvent? And if there is you know, cause for them to believe that the company maybe wasn't insolvent, they might be able to you know, have due regard for that on the part of the director. So again, it's very focused on what was the basis for you thinking the company was insolvent? And that again speaks to what I think Delaware could do in the context of the business judgment rule. Here it's just grafted into the duty itself. But the hope, I mean, other than the Irish legislative proposal, it, it is kind of very undeveloped law in Ireland. It's very much understood in relation to the law in Australia and um, being, I think, I suppose, the, the kind of birthplace of this whole area, really, or at least you know, in, terms, in terms of Australia and New Zealand in particular. And it's understood very much in relation to what the UK does. And I suppose what's of interest to me is we're basically waiting right now for the UK Supreme Court to release its opinion on what this duty should look like going forward. So we have a very was a recent case in front of the UK Supreme Court. So we don't really know what it's going to look like in, in, the, coming, in the coming months in, in the context of the UK. The Court of Appeal in the UK has also very much declined to give 
a singular test for what insolvency is and, and what directors are expected to do. I think the phrase that's used is insolvency is often understood as a variety of expressions. So again, this idea that it's not just one thing, there's multiple ways of understanding it and approaching it. And that's where the law is in the UK, very much, you know, leaving things open for directors to, to, to decide the condition of their own company. But we'll have to see, we'll have to wait and see how things will go in the next few months. Will the UK What's Supreme the Court case? completely change it? What's the case you're saying you're waiting on? In the UK, the Supreme Court. Let me just pull it up now. And my name, I'm just blanking on the name. Uh, Sequana, sorry, yeah. Uh, BTI and Sequana. Okay. Um, is, uh, it's, the oral arguments have been heard. So we're all finished there. It was all done over Zoom, which was, very exciting for me uh, to be able to tune in. But uh, I think that was in May, um, the oral arguments have happened. So I, in the next few months, we should have a Supreme Court judgment on this. Oh, I'll be waiting for that, or maybe I'll wait for your updates on that. <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much. But before I let you go, I think it's interesting to just hear about what your PhD is about. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm sure based on the enthusiasm I speak about it, very obviously my PhD uh, is on the position of creditors in, in uh, corporate direction in particular. It's comparative, so I'm looking at Delaware, but I'm also looking at Ireland, UK, Canada and Australia, so quite a broad look at common law countries. And unlike this particular paper, I'm actually not looking at insolvency uh, because I think insolvency there's a lot of work in it already. I wanted to do something a bit different. So I'm actually looking at how creditors are positioned or understood in solvent companies. So if you had particularly sophisticated creditors, if they want to impose their own preferences onto a company, either their financial preferences or non-financial. So I'm thinking of things like sustainability and kind of ESG concerns, if a bank wanted to impose those on a company, how would that work in the context of a corporate law framework? So what is the duty of a director, for instance, the duty to consider or to, to act in the interests of the company or in the best interests of a company? What are those interests? What are What is encapsulated in the interests of a company? Is it really just shareholder value? Is it broader? Is there maybe a statutory framework which kind of lists groups that can be considered? In that context, I'm thinking of maybe Canada and the UK, which do give, you know, a bit more of a detailed list. And I look at different ways that creditors might be able to influence the company. So uh, even when it's not insolvency and, and why might they want to influence the company and what corporate law mechanisms are available to them. So it's quite broad because it's, it's obviously quite comparative, but I, I think this field in particular, there's a lot of comparative work constantly happening. I think it's inherently comparative anyway. And yeah, I'm, I'm about halfway through it now. So I think things are finally starting to come together, uh, at least I, I hope so. But yeah, it, it, it's an, definitely an interesting field to be in at the minute, particularly, I think when I started maybe two years ago, there was the sense that this is kind of done to death, you know, the duties of directors and creditors. And then during my PhD, I've been somewhat, somewhat lucky enough to see my own jurisdiction bring in legislation in this area. And then also see the UK Supreme Court in, introducing or, or ruling now in the next few months on the duty to consider creditors. So I feel very much like it, it's back in fashion. <laughs> so I timed it quite well, I think. 
No, but the way you've explained it, I think, sounds a little different from just the duty to creditors, right? It sounds really interesting mm. if uh, in the current mood of ESG concerns, climate change preferences, imagine, I'm, I'm thinking of creditors having these sort of, we want you to focus on X, Y, Z priorities. And then wouldn't we think about can directors give away their discretion? Mm. And so I, I think it's super interesting. I'll be looking forward to it. Yes, of course. I'm, I'm hopefully, I mean, I think I have two years left. So when, when it finally wraps up, I, I'm sure I'll be shouting to high heavens. <laughs> so I'll be here to send it on then. Sure. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me.